Welcome to Context, the podcast from Arizona State University's Construction Technologies class, giving you an inside look into the backgrounds and theories of the subjects covered in this course. Greetings, Con 453 students. Welcome to Context. Today, we're talking about prefabrication. We're pretty excited. We've got Chase Farnsworth and myself, Steve Ayer, with you as always. Chase, how are you doing today? I am just running a million miles a minute, but I'm having fun. It's great to be getting back out and meeting people and doing things like we uh, did once upon a time. Yeah, right. Is it uh, with all, more, more masks and fist bumps, though, I'm guessing, is kind of the new norm now? You know, the thing that cracks me up, and, I'll, and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll stay off my soapbox on this, is it's so funny to me because when you go to lunches, yeah, it's fist bumps when you say hi, but masks are off as soon as you're at the table, yeah. right? <laughs> and then, you know, if we're, but if we're in a meeting in someone's office and you're in a conference room, oh, the mask better stay on the entire time. So, you know, I'm going to stay off my soapbox on it, but I just, I just think it's interesting that, that, there, that there's that difference in paradigm, even though the essential setting is the same. Yeah, we're still figuring it out. It's, uh, it's, it's an opportunity for innovation and learning here in, uh, in our society. So we're, we're figuring this one out. Yeah. On that note, what we are talking about today is prefabrication, right? And we're talking with a, a company um, that used to be Corbin's. It's, I guess still is Corbin's, but they've kind of evolved. And I want to kind of tell you all, the student, a little bit of the, the story of this company. When I started up at ASU a number of years ago, I first got introduced uh, with Corbin's because they had been presenting in this course, Con 453. Uh, I'd seen some of the technologies they were working with. They were very BIM-focused, and they did a lot with this. Um, but they did a couple of things that were different than some other companies. For example, they used BIM, and they said, well, it doesn't do what we need. So rather than just you know grumbling or, or saying, uh, we're just not going to use BIM, they said, we'll just build a new software that does do what we need. Right? Kind of an audacious aim, actually. I mean, that's not super common in industry. Um, some companies do this, but I wouldn't call that super common. Their innovation, their little tool, their little engine that could kind of software add-on actually turned into a company, right? So they're actually selling now software as well, and they have a software product they produce. And this led to sort of a, I guess, a sister company or spin-off company, maybe my verbiage might be off, called Knox Innovations. We're going to have Brian Pemberton in this week. He's from uh, Knox Innovations and is some, from sort of the, the Corbin's family. So he knows the, the lineage of this company um, and about how they, they use their technologies. But the reason why we're bringing them in for our topic, again, prefabrication, is because they've used these technologies throughout their history to enable prefabrication. One of the things that stuck with me when I talked to some of their other uh, employees over the years, you know, just getting to know the company, they made comments like, we as a company will only do BIM if it enables prefabrication. That's the only way it's worth our time. And to me, I found this to be really interesting. They're an electrical contractor, right? A trade contractor, a specialty contractor, right? So this is their domain. This is how they get value out of it. And so we're bringing them into the class to try to provide some context around the practices and behaviors they use for prefabrication. So maybe on that note, Chase, tell us a little bit about prefab and kind of what is it maybe at an industry level. Um, and if you want to talk about Corbin's or Knox, of course we can. And then I'll, I'll talk a little on the research side. Yeah, perfect. So um, maybe maybe just start a little bit with Knox. It's, 
kind of interesting, um, maybe just a behind the scenes peek for the students on, on why the name Knox. Um, so as Aaron Thompson, who used to be the, the guest presenter for us from, from that entity, shared with us one time, um, they, they kind of you know, realized that they wanted to be out there thinking outside of the box as an industry partner. Um, and then in a moment, a la Matrix, if anyone's ever seen that, where you know the, there is no spoon, they realized there is no box is kind of the perspective they needed to have. And so they pushed those two words together and ergo, now you have Knox Innovations. So <clears throat> fun little backstory for you, but maybe jumping into you know, the, the point of the conversation today around prefabrication, as the students and listeners you know, now are probably maybe over accustomed to hearing, um, <laughs> Steve, they're used to hearing that you know, we don't you know, we don't, we don't lead with the solution, right? We don't lead with the fun technological tool. Yep. It's all about understanding the problem. That's um, it. And we're doing the same thing here with prefabrication, right? Um, so in case the students haven't heard or aren't aware, there are several different problems that we face in our industry. We just had a conversation with Mitch Transtrom and talked about the persistent issues around um, safe production in our project sites. And so that's, that's one of them, right? And, and it will tie to prefabrication as the students will hear in just a minute. But that is one of the things we're trying to solve for here. Um, another thing that's a per persistent issue um, is this idea of a skills gap. Um, and some people in some areas are even calling it a skills cliff um, is, is an interesting element. So what we have happening in the industry for anyone who might not be aware is um, twofold problem, skills gap, skills cliff. The skills cliff is actually we've got this, you know, very, very um, well-trained, well-experienced body of people in our construction industry that have been building, you know, highly complex projects for, for many, many years, some of them, you know, even into the 30 and 40 year range, and they're nearing retirement. Um, and, you know, if you start looking at some of the demographics and the numbers, we're going to see a significant amount of retirement in the next, you know, 10 or so years out of the construction industry. And that's that cliff that I'm alluding to. There, there will be this gap of, of talent and knowledge that um, that no longer exists in our industry. We can't just go out to that salty superintendent or that salty foreman and say, you know, hey, how did you, how, how do you do this? How, how have you done this? Um, what's a better way of doing this, right? And have some of these conversations. And the, the, the skills gap side um, is then on the front end, you know, the, a problem that we have. And, you know, thankfully, we've got a great construction program here at ASU, um, but there's this gap of, you know, we're not having a whole lot of talent coming into the industry. Um, that's both on the management side, so you know the students who are in their degrees, but actually even more so on the vocational side or the actual trade side. Um, so we're needing to solve for this problem of you know continued. Frankly, it just comes down to labor shortage is really what it comes down to. So you know these are maybe two of the lenses that I'll focus on for this conversation about the opportunities that prefabrication presents to us as an industry. Um, so around the safe production side. You know, one of the most hazardous things, like you heard Mitch talk about, is you know how we assemble some of these things in the field. A lot of times we're up on ladders, or we're, you know, um, trying to wrestle with sometimes heavy pieces of material, or we're having to get into some funky positions and situations to access, you know, where two materials need to come together in some way. And so this whole idea of prefabrication is it gets us out of that um, construction environment and into a controlled environment. Um, and I use that word intentionally because um, sometimes prefabrication happens, you know, within warehouses, right? There's whole and warehouses that'll be purchased or leased to support prefabrication activities. Sometimes it's just happening on the ground, maybe in a adjacent site to where your project is. But nonetheless, it's again a controlled environment um, where prefabrication can occur. 
So um, this is, you know, one of the big opportunities for us is to actually build things in a safe manner and, and assemble them essentially in a quasi, you know, manufacturing industrialized perspective. And then, you know, in essentially large assemblies um, or large components, ship them to the job site and then, you know, essentially lift them in place or, or place them um, as a whole unit. And then all we're doing then is just, you know, mating together maybe a, a a smaller number of unions or a smaller number of connections. And so the, um, the time to do it, the exposure to unsafe conditions or the exposure to un unsafe behaviors is, uh, I'll say minimized, not eliminated quite yet. Um, and then on the, on the skills gap side or the skills cliff side, this is, you know, well, this is going to lean into what Steve will talk about here in just a second, but, um, you know, think about these, these folks that are retiring, you know, might they still be able to stay on in a, in a, in a consultant role where they don't have to, bear the burden, frankly, of a job site? Um, and might they be able to be in that shop environment or that warehouse environment and help to oversee the work and help to train people on how to do it? Um, or might we somehow, you know, uh, maybe it's record and be able to then communicate the training. But my, my point is that um, the necessity for, for that skilled labor is, is frankly a little bit less once we get into that um, warehouse type environment, that prefabrication environment. And I'll maybe give a quick nod towards um, the the next section, the next session we'll have, excuse me, um, where we'll talk about a little something called digital fabrication, which takes kind of prefab to the next level, um, where it more directly addresses this um, skills gap, skills cliff issue. But um, Steve, anything else around some of the opportunities for prefabrication, or you want to jump into some of the technology and research? Yeah, so I mean, I'll, I'll just say it in my, you know, uh, sort of generic academic ease. But, but I mean, from a simple level, when you look at the problem that we have, right, historically, at least over the last several decades, maybe the last couple years are an exception, but the last several decades, our industry has also been criticized for, say, productivity, right? So we're not great in productivity. And as Chase said, we're going to lose people. And so things are just getting worse from sort of bad to worse. Now, we could just hope we get some huge miracle influx of new people, and somehow they also are more productive than all of the generations that came before them, right? But that's kind of naive at that point. It's probably unlikely to happen. And so from a what do we do about this, that's where the next content that we're discussing comes into play. You either make the humans you do have better, or take the humans out of the, the equation and make it so we're no longer relying on they, them as the sort of engines of you know delivering work, right? And this is kind of one of the key differences between um, prefabrication and digital fabrication, which we'll get to later. For ours today, we're talking about kind of option one, right? Make the human better at what they do. What um, excited me from a research perspective about this company, uh, when it was Corbin's, they had presented a study, and you may get to see this in class, where they were trying to prove the value of BIM and prefabrication. Right? So what they did, they had a bunch of people in their company who had never tried BIM, never done prefab. And as maybe you can imagine, like we talked about earlier in the semester, someone who's never done it and said, we're going to change workflows on you, they're going to resist it. They're going to say, this is a bad idea. I can do this faster than BIM. You're wasting your time building a model that will never be used outside of the computer. We don't need this, right? What they did is a test to actually have um, a BIM uh, content generated for creating cut sheets, um, for actually building on the project site, for what, what uh, people would actually make on the site. They also used it for prefabricating, which in their eyes is bending and cutting conduit, which they'll put into the building. 
Um, and they did a study where they had two different individuals, uh, two different teams, I should say, in a warehouse essentially build the same piece of conduit. Um, one was doing it the BIM and prefab way. One was doing it the traditional way. So in some ways, the BIM and prefab started out at a, at a disadvantage because there was a whole bunch of effort they had to account for in that in terms of the time to model, the time to prefab, all those things, right? So there's upfront costs they had to pay for there that they didn't in the traditional model. Despite that, what they found is, you know, it, the, the time there was, was a fraction of the time they spent in the more traditional approach, which when you watch the video, it almost becomes sort of, um, uh, you, you know, it just extremely obvious. You, you see it and you're like, you're like well, yeah, because there's so much inefficiency in the other process. And it's just the excruciating detail of, oh, now he has to measure this, he's got to do, and it becomes obvious. Where the research came in and where my interest in the company came in is I saw what they were doing and they were making BIM. Remember, back to, back to BIM 101, it's a 3D model with physical and functional properties, right? So it's information-rich, data-rich model. We're taking this model, and as I've talked about so much in class, the model is used because it offers value downstream, but upfront, it costs money. The same way it costs money for the experiment, it costs money on projects. We put in money upfront to invest in these models, and the payback is downstream. But even in their approach that they had done in this um, demo, right, BIM versus is the more traditional approach, the actual communication mechanism to the field personnel, the people putting the conduit together, was paper. So think about this for a second. I've paid up front to make a BIM, data-rich, parametric, information-embedded model, three dimensions. I've paid to model this content. I take this 3D model, I dumb it down to paper plans, I send it out to the field personnel, they gotta flip through a bunch of sheets and hope that the mental model they create based on those sheets matches the model we started with which seems slow and prone to error. So we said, well, why don't we test this? And we used a technology called augmented reality, which several of you got to try earlier this semester with uh, Kieran's research, right? So we, did, we used augmented reality to essentially say, if you've already made the model, why don't you just let them build the model? Just show the model around. Let's take out some of that re reinterpretation, mental model generation. And what we found, maybe not surprisingly, was we can actually have them build faster and with fewer errors. So again, when we talk back to the start with the problem, the problem here is we don't have enough people to do the work we need, and even the work we have them doing is still slow and prone to errors. If we can have technology that makes them do work faster and better, this is something that can offer value. And so that was the study we had done. Um, they may even talk about that in class. I'm happy to address it, or um, if anyone's super research uh, interested, you can even look up the papers on it. We've gotten the work published. Um, I guess the takeaway for this company is they're very interested in prefabrication. That's the focus of our topic or of our conversation in class. But a lot of it is also going to revolve around how does technology somehow uh, uh, support it, right? Does it enable the human to do his or her work better? Or does it somehow take away tasks that we can automate, do faster, or somehow enable them by removing the need for the human, which, by the way, we don't have enough already, as Chase mentioned. So, so what are the ways in which it's helping for prefabrication efforts that we've got? So with that, Chase, what's next? <laughs> Well said, well said. So what is next? So as opposed to some of the others that you've heard previously um, around what's next and, and the project types we kind of had you contextualize, this one we're gonna stay project agnostic. Um, because again, with prefabrication, like we've talked about, we're not solving for a specific project type. We're actually looking for um, opportunities and efficiencies across all project types. So that is kind of an intro to the what's next. 
Consider which building systems might be opportunistic to assemble or pre-manufacture offsite. This could be maybe your enclosure, your walls, your MEP systems. There's a handful of others. Um, are there any of these elements of the system that you're thinking about which um, might need to be left for field installation, right? So you remember me talking about how things still need to get made it up out in the field eventually. We can't just drop the whole building just yet. Um, so if anything needs to be left for field installation, which, which ones, why, right? Um, what about the constructability might demand that? And then which, if any, technological tools might support your prefabrication efforts, right? And then last but not least, um, I think this kind of reflects back to our conversation with Abby Hoover. Um, can any of those tools maybe hinder your efforts as well, right? Remember, technology isn't necessarily always just to the positive. So um, anyway, that's it. That's what's next. And uh, thanks for joining us. We hope this gave you some context. There you go. <laughs> I, had to, I had to jump in with it.